This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt and I'm in Melbourne. And I'm Jane McNaughton here in Ballarat. Jane, today we're looking at chronic fatigue syndrome and what people living with long COVID can learn from those living with chronic fatigue syndrome. But I guess the first question is, do we actually take fatigue seriously? And those that are living with ME, CFS, which is known as chronic fatigue syndrome, would probably say no. No, we don't take fatigue seriously. For years, they've fought for funding, for recognition, or even just simply to be believed. But now many are saying that that perception, it needs to change. As a society here in Australia, Rish, I'm not sure whether you've noticed, but burnout is basically an expectation. People just accept the status quo that... You're just going to be tired all the time. Mm. But fatigue is much, much more than that. Around 250,000 Australians live with ME-CFS, or what we're going to call today chronic fatigue syndrome, a post-viral disease that manifests as extreme fatigue and brain fog. Some living with ME-CFS call it a living death, Rochelle. I know, that's a really powerful statement, isn't it? And that's just to not being able to move and to get on with life. And more and more people... we are diagnosed with long COVID, which is another post-viral disease, many will be unable to work, to live a normal life for months, which are very similar to the symptoms of living with chronic fatigue syndrome. And advocates are saying that the number of people needing support and treatment is set to skyrocket. Now, some studies around the world are saying that long COVID can affect anywhere, pretty much all of us, right, from 2.3% to 76% of those of us that get COVID-19 will potentially get long COVID. So we'll have all of those symptoms of fatigue, all of those post-viral symptoms that we're talking about, and whether or not, if we don't take chronic fatigue syndrome seriously, are we going to start to take the symptoms of long COVID seriously? Will this be a bit of a wake-up call almost? Well, even just that statistic you read out, anywhere from 2.3% to 76% of COVID-19 cases could potentially have long COVID. The disparity in those figures says it all, really, doesn't it? So what will we learn? Will long COVID help shine a spotlight on post-viral diseases? What can long COVID patients learn from ME-CFS patients? As a society, do we take fatigue seriously? And as you just said, Jane, what can we learn about long COVID from chronic fatigue syndrome? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. I had to pretty much take a whole term off school and then going back to school, I was literally falling asleep in class because I just, I didn't have the stamina to get through the day. Some professionals would tell me it was in my head. Some would say, yeah, you've got this thing. There's no cure. You know, they couldn't really help me. That's Bloom, a singer known as Bloom, speaking with AM last week about living with chronic fatigue syndrome. Today on The Conversation Hour, we're looking at, as a society, do we take fatigue seriously? And as more and more of us will be diagnosed with long COVID, where the symptoms are very similar, what do we need to learn and understand about living with post-viral disease? Jane McNaughton, you're with us from our Ballarat studios. Have you ever had um, chronic fatigue syndrome or someone close to you ever lived with chronic fatigue syndrome? I know someone that I suspect has had a variation of some kind of extreme fatigue. I don't know whether they were diagnosed or not, but it really does take away from the everyday value of just being able to get up and get on with it, doesn't it? Like, yeah. I'm, like I'm, you know, we complain about being tired, as I mentioned in our introduction, and how that's sort of an expectation now yeah. for people. You know, we work long hours, we get the job done, We quite a lot of people have to commute a long way to work. Come, and then you have to go home and take care of the family and do all those sorts of things too. So we talk about tiredness as an ex- as, as, a, as something that we ex- accept and that's something that's just part of day-to-day life. But imagine that times 100. Yeah. It would just be a really debilitating way to live. This text saying uh, MECFS is not just fatigue. Every system in the body is affected. It is mm. indescribable. Before we go to our experts, let's have a chat with Peter. He's in Berwick. Good day, Peter. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. What did you want to say? Um, I just want to say I've been dealing with um, COVID for many years now. It fluctuates 
has been fluctuating over the years, but I've um, I'm post COVID two weeks uh, two weeks now, and I have been hit really hard in regards to um, the symptoms of COVID, but also the symptoms of uh, of CFS, um, the brain fog, the fatigue. Uh, it is just it's exhausting, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want anyone to have it. So, uh, Peter, so, does it matter how much you sleep? Because a lot of people say that, oh, you just need a bit more rest. Is is it as simple as just going to bed earlier and waking up a bit later? It's not that simple, absolutely not. Um, CFS also affects your sleep. Even though you're fatigued, um, it'll, it, it, uh, it affects your sleep as, as well. Um, so some nights I sleep really well and other nights I don't. And it's... It's not easy just to be able to go to bed and sleep and, and rest and you know like a normal person can. So um, and I mean I've just come home from shopping for only for an hour and I'm ready just to sit and do nothing for the rest wow. of the day. So um, Peter, so I didn't quite catch it at the beginning. You're saying that you're living now with long COVID, or is it a mix now of um, results of having COVID nineteen, but also prior living with chronic fatigue syndrome? Look, I think it's both. But prior to me um, getting COVID, um, I was doing really well. My, I, I was exercising a lot more, and and my CFS, I was it was stabilising. Um, but since COVID, the symptoms have come back. Um, so, it so it hasn't been easy. Peter, hopefully today we'll be able to shine a bit of a light on this, just not only how common it is, but where you can get treatment as well and whether or not there's just more funding that's needed in this. Peter, thank you so much for your call. Dr Richard Schlerfell is, well, he has an order of Australia in chronic and infectious diseases. He's also the medical, medical director at Emerge Australia. Richard, welcome to the conversation hour. For years yes, it feels morning. like those living with chronic fatigue syndrome have been calling out to be believed that fatigue is simply not just feeling tired and as Jane said well just go to bed early and and get up a a little later these are things that affect all aspects of people's lives yes look I think the term chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't really tell you what this syndrome is Look, it does affect 250,000 Australians and 75% of those Australians are women 25% of these people are housebound and bedridden, never leave the house. So they're severely disabled. And the fatigue is not really the hallmark of the disease. It's what's called post-exertional malaise. That sense that you do one thing, which could be bedroom to the bathroom and back again, and that's profoundly fatiguing and you end up in bed. It may be one thing in the house a day, or it might be going out once a week. And that's all you do and that's your whole life and the rest of it's just spent resting and the rest doesn't relieve the fatigue because there's a pathological disease process causing damage and uh, dysfunction in every tissue and every organ of the body leading to multitudes of symptoms and some patients complain of 50 or even 100 symptoms which don't seem to match but it does explain why these patients really aren't seen very well because they don't fit into any known disease process except ME-CFS, which is probably a diagnosis of exclusion. So, Richard, I know that Rochelle's talked about sort of invisible illnesses on the program before. Uh, Endometriosis is another one, for example. You mentioned there that 75% of ME-CFS patients are women. Is, is, yes. is that part of it? Because I have heard many, many stories of women's diseases and women's uh, health concerns not being taken seriously. Do you think that that's part of this? Uh, probably not. I, look, I, I just think it's not a, an illness. Because most doctors don't recognise it. They have great difficulty diagnosing it. They don't have enough, especially GPs, enough time to make the diagnosis, make the connections organise some sort of treatment or management process, bring in allied health, provide all the services one individual patient needs 
and also the support of the carers of the people who look after these patients. So it's a very complex, difficult illness. And I think we just don't, as GPs and as doctors, we mm. just don't have enough attention on it. And there isn't that much funding and there's definitely very little funding for research and there's no clinics or anything until we actually came along with this long COVID issue and now there's starting to be wow. a number of long COVID clinics starting up. Otherwise, this is a forgotten illness. It's just not easy to diagnose and treat. I think that's the biggest problem, not just because it's a women's disorder. Let's have a chat. Stay with us. Let's have a chat to yes. Nola, who's in Fernie Creek. Hi, Nola. Oh, good morning. Um, I've had uh, chronic fatigue for 25 years. Uh, in the last seven months, I've had, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had COVID twice. I have long COVID and I had an anaphylactic reaction to the vaccine. Um, so I'm almost housebound at the moment. That must be incredibly um, isolating, Nola. Yes, it is. Um, and when people talk about fatigue and feeling tired, um, they really don't know what they're talking about. How does that affect your mental health, if you don't mind me asking? Knowledge is to the extent you're willing to share. Oh. Yeah, look, I don't mind at all. Um, other symptoms that you have are things like um, uh, sleep disruption, even though you're so exhausted you can barely walk, um, extreme dizziness, pain, brain fog, hard to find your words. Um, so then you go along to your doctor with all these um, ailments and they tell you it's all in your head. Um that really does a number on people and I would say nearly every person that I've ever come in contact with throughout the world through different groups all have had um, lack of support and terrible things said to them about doctors about take a pill or just get on with it uh, etc. The fact Um, that you're still being told oh it's all in your head. Nola do you feel as though maybe your symptoms and how it affects your life will be taken a little more seriously now you know as Richard just said because of long COVID that now maybe that you will be taken seriously? Yes look I I, I really hope so and was really interested interesting listening to Richard then um Hopefully some money will be put into um, finding out what the answers might be for people and um, so they can get on, have some sort of life, some sort of life. Um, But I think when people talk about um, the mental health side and the stress side, I think when the body is very unwell, I think the sympathetic nervous system gets switched on. Um, That's your fight and flight, like if you're running from a tiger. Um, and I think that gets switched on and I think it's a slow drip that it's there all the time because people people don't understand and people don't try to understand and there isn't the support amongst family, friends uh, and doctors. Most people have one or two people that will support them and basically that's it and it's a really long, dark road. And that's when you need friends and family the most, Nola, isn't it? That's when you need those those support around you. I really hope that you do get the support that you need and even just by having conversations like this today that, you know, we start yeah, to take it you. seriously. We wish you all the best. I won't give up. No, don't. Please don't. And thank you for sharing your story because it's really important, Jane, isn't it, to be able to talk about that. I mean, there's a text here that says my friend had to fight for NDIS support with chronic fatigue syndrome. She's almost bedridden. That's from Jane. Dr. Richard Schlellefell is with you as well, Order of Australia and Chronic and Infectious Diseases. Hearing the story there from Nola, unfortunately, Richard, do you hear stories like that all the time or is it starting to shift? No, look, that's the normal story. Look, I've treated over 5,000 people with ME-CFS for the last 25 years and I've focused my practice and now my research at Macquarie University. And that's a very common story. And, you know, sad to hear Nola's story, but there are people worse than her. And But her story is very common and, and the lack of support from general practitioners and the society in general and trying to get a disability support pension or NDIS is almost impossible because it's not gazetted under any act that this there's not a particular guideline that guides you how to diagnose and treat it. Therefore, it doesn't fit into any category. But look, to give you some understanding of what ME-CFS is, in my current knowledge, which I think has been enhanced by understanding what long COVID is. Now, long COVID is a persistence of symptoms greater than three months from when you've had the COVID infection, where you've got the same problem. You've got cognitive impairment, 
fatigue, but this post-exertional malaise, this feeling you do one little thing and you're absolutely shattered. And the, the fatigue is unrelenting, unrelieved by rest. And that's the hallmark of this disease. And then you've got all these other disorders, especially in long COVID, you've got shortness of breath and chest pain and dropping of your blood pressure and bowel dysfunction. All, all tissues and organs can be affected, a lot of pain, often in joints and muscles and nerve pain. And you see the same thing in MECFS. And what the latest research is showing that there's ongoing inflammation after you catch the virus or in other infections or other reasons why you have MECFS or long COVID, an inflammatory process sets up below the normal pathological radar. So you can't pick it up in a normal blood test. That inflammation persists in tissues and organs all over the body, affecting cell function. And every cell that's dysfunctional, and the sum total of all those dysfunctional cells is the fatigue you experience. So there's a true pathology mm. going on here. It's not an imagined disorder. It's not a choice disorder. It's not psychosomatic or psychiatric. It's a biological, pathological, cellular disorder of cellular fatigue leading to all these disrupted organs and tissues with a multitude of symptoms. So why so, do so few people believe it, Richard? Why every uh, time people say doctors tell you it's in your head, is it more of a, look, a reflection really on society? Look, what you've just told me, I call that medical abuse syndrome. So don't get me started on doctors <laughs> and how they push this disease aside. As a, look, I teach for the College of GPs. I'm writing guidelines, I'm doing research, I've seen 5,000 patients and I've never seen a patient that is a malingerer or made this up. This is a so, real pathological yeah. illness and it's the lack of science and education of the doctors in understanding the illness. And it's not the doctor's fault, it just hasn't been a sexy illness. It's not something where governments or science departments or researchers have put their money and their educated thought until long COVID came along. Mm. Now, so everyone's we... trying to find an answer for that and that helps with understanding MECFS. Let's hope that that is the case and that uh, there is more understanding and acceptance of this. But you mentioned the guidelines there for GPs that you're beginning to write or have written what kind yes. of guidelines are they and how do you think that that will uh that framework will help doctors more uh accurately diagnose Diagnosis, this yeah. well this process is about to start i mean i think that's part of the problem is that the guidelines we've had are outmoded and they haven't caught up with the science that we currently have so one of my roles with emerge australia is to try and develop evidence-based guidelines and the first thing is how do you you know find a doctor be accepted that you've got this illness have a proper diagnostic process a management plan get you some funding get ndis a pension then work out if there's some treatment we can offer get allied health in support the carers and then have a process of long-term management because some of these people are not just sick for a year or two some of the patients i've seen sick unwell with this have been unwell for 20 or 30 years never leaving the house bedroom and you institute a management plan and within a year they've improved i'm not saying i can cure people but you know if you take a, a, an intellectual practical assessment of a patient as a doctor these patients can have be treated and managed just like anyone else but i just think we're not we haven't got the education or the science yeah. out there collectively amongst doctors to actually make an impact yet but that's what's going to happen i mean Gosh, i hope that changes well, it will. I think well, we're about, according to Deakin University, they've just put out, a, this is in Melbourne, uh, a study suggesting that we could have somewhere between 80 and 325,000 cases of long COVID by the end of the year. I hope they're wrong because, you know, that's quite frightening. And uh, getting vaccinated has definitely reduced the risk. If you have not vaccinated, the risk of long COVID is 10 to 30%, according to the English studies. If you're vaccinated, it comes down to about 5%. So vaccination throughout Australia, and we've done so well with this, is probably protecting people from developing the long COVID. And then there's a thought process that GPs need to learn. If someone's still sick weeks, four, five, six, eight weeks after long COVID, there are things we can do medically to dampen down this inflammation that I mentioned that leads to this long COVID or ME-CFS disorder. And by treating that in the early instance, you may well 
prevent long COVID from developing. And that's part of my role as, you know, ed- as an educator is to actually let people know there are things you can do, practical things that every GP should be able to learn and do. But again, that takes a guideline. That takes something that GP yeah. can access to work from, yes. To work from. Dr Richard Schlerfell is with the Order of Australian Chronic and Infectious Diseases, the medical director as well at Emerge. Jan's been waiting in Bacchus Marsh. Hi, Jan. Hello, and I just want to say thank you, Dr Richard, because my husband, um, fully vaccinated, got COVID in December. He mm. then followed through with shingles, and we now believe he now has um, long COVID. But it, now this conversation has made us aware. So when he goes to the doctors, the GP, he's going to say, I believe I have long COVID. You have to help me. So it's Jan- really sad. And sorry, and hearing this conversation, how we used to have the, um, the bulletins about the COVID numbers and what we had to do. I do believe something needs to come on the news. Like on that, I don't you do a lot of social media. But we need to be educated in the long COVID, you know, like it's amazing. And it's so sad to see a strong man. Sorry, stop it. Oh, Jan. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's sorry. really, no, take your time. And I mean, no. that must have been a wake up, like a, a light bulb moment for you and for your husband as well, realising that you have long COVID. And I love the strength in your voice when you yeah. said that you're going to walk in to your doctor's office and say, we think we have long COVID. You need to help us, you know, to take that power of control over diagnosis as well. Oh, that has only come from listening to the conversation today. Um, my partner couldn't hear it today and he said, you make sure you listen. And it's just, I feel so sad for all the people that have chronic fatigue and and now the long COVID. Like, it's, isn't it sad? It's just yeah, the it's undiagnosis of it all. And, and we don't have the empathy. And I think... With COVID now, I think a lot more people do have empthy of the viral illnesses and things like that. So, so thank you. Oh, Jane, really thank you. Jan, mm. we wish you and your husband all the best. Richard, I mean, everyone yes. that's rung in today has an rightly so, has got really emotional because this is affecting not just those that are living with long COVID or living with chronic fatigue syndrome. Their loved ones. Yes. Their loved ones. Yeah. Well, it's a very lonely illness. I mean, it's lonely for the patient terribly lonely for the carers and look, I often get people come in in their 30s and 40s and their parents bring them in and they've oh, been gosh. caring for them at home in a room and the parents are in their 70s trying to look after this disabled person who's been sick since a teenager. Now they're hidden and we're talking 250,000 possibly hundreds of thousands of long COVID patients. We're in trouble. You know this is a real illness and there are things we can do. I mean, I think there's a there's a rapidity, I suppose, of we need to be very rapid in getting some guidelines, getting some thoughts out there. But I've just done a literature review around the world. And I can tell you, most doctors and all the research we're doing, we're all struggling to find a diagnostic biomarker, something we can test to test for it. So it's a historical, his, history-based, examine-based diagnosis. And then the next thing is to really understand the um, possible treatments. And the treatments are few and far between other than just accepting and taking the patient on diagnosing their condition and then supporting them through the illness and then trying to find, treat some of the symptoms, which is what I've been developing for a long time. If you treat individual symptoms and then maybe find one or two things you can dampen down the inflammation that's occurring in the body, then there's a concept we call pacing, which is basically getting patients to do as much as they can, but if they get too tired, they rest if tired, don't push themselves too mm. hard, don't, don't do too much. All those little instructive things that you can do as a doctor can make a profound difference. Just ha- having a patient come in and you validate their illness automatically you've got a therapeutic relationship. It would, and I can it would tell lift you, most such a weight off your shoulders, Richard. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Look, I often say you, you're here now, you're safe. Oh, Because oh. I've already diagnosed them <laughs> and they might have seen 20 or 30 doctors before they get to see oh. me. Now, I'm an older doctor and I'm, you know, I'm about to go into full-time research and teaching, but it's, you know, the, the, every GP has the capacity and the clinics that are setting up for long COVID 
you know, to actually help people with this as long as we get the information out there. And, you know, there, there's some people saying that, you know, they, we don't know what how many numbers, what the numbers are going to be. But I rang a clinic the other day in Sydney and they said within the first day they were all already oversubscribed for the number of patients they could take in their long COVID clinic in one day. Gosh. If I put a message out that I'm going to take patients, I'll often get 300 patients a day ringing up. Wow. So there's this hidden group of people out there. Oh, there's so many of them, Richard. The texts. Yes, oh, look, they come, they're coming, coming through. There's, everywhere. there's one here they'll saying, be... I'm sitting in my car now crying, listening to this doctor, telling the world that the virus is not imagined. My daughter oh, has suffered imagined. so severely and finally this man believes us. And even you oh. just saying, when you say to patients, you're here now, you're safe, every part of me just wanted to burst into tears, yeah. just knowing that that's what you have to say to people. Richard, well, that's my whole career. I've just looked after people with oh, MECFS. I haven't been it's believed. Fa- and I don't have the condition. Condition. I don't have family members with the condition. I'm not. I do it because I'm interested in the patients, and you can do something to improve their lives. And I think, as a doctor, if you can do that, that's a that's a wonderful mm. thing. But this is why you have an order of, of Australia. Can I just say? But let's every bring one in... of these patients deserves yeah. diagnosis and treatment. Absolutely. Can Let... I just say, Rochelle, as yeah. well, if anyone listening to this conversation uh, is in a difficult situation or has family in a difficult situation uh, mentally, you can always call Lifeline on 13 yeah. 11 14 because uh, we do know this is a very difficult discussion. Uh, but we do also have Jennifer Bailey-Tuck on the line. She's had onset MECFS for 23 years. Jennifer, how do you mm. get up in the morning? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, thank you for having me. And um, thank Dr. you, Richard, that was really wonderful to hear. It's I, I wish that I had a doctor or a specialist. I've got some great GPs, but a specialist that could actually do something to help. So, um I, I get woken up by my kids, I think, is probably where I start in the mornings. How long did it take you to get a diagnosis, Jennifer? Um, look, I was initially diagnosed in the UK when I was 13, and um, that's pretty hazy for me, but I think it was about 6 to 12 months. And to get re-diagnosed in Australia was probably another 6 months. So when you mentioned the haziness there, what can you tell us about the brain fog that you would experience on a day-to-day basis? Um, The brain fog is really difficult. So sometimes it would feel... It's difficult to describe. It's almost like a hangover when you have been drinking. So you get that, um, that exhaustion. It's difficult to be coherent or articulate. Um, It makes even making decisions really difficult because it's like you're swimming through cotton wool, basically. When we talk about, there's another woman that we reached out to who we've spoken to Mm -hmm. in the past uh, who is also living with chronic fatigue syndrome and she wasn't in a great place at the moment and she said, look, if I speak to you, it will will wipe me out for maybe a couple of days Um, and, of course, that was the last thing that we wanted. So just, I guess, that thing too of not knowing what actions you're going to do and what every day will bring must be really frustrating. And that's probably an understatement, Jennifer. Yeah, look, I think that there's an everyday grief and loss of living with this illness. And um, it's almost like you have to think about everything that you need to do in a day, take out that until you've got just one or two things, and then you have to rest to balance those things out. So um, it is incredibly frustrating. And being a mother of two, Jennifer, how are you able to manage that? I haven't got children, but I'm, I'm sure being a parent's hard enough as it is. But how do you how do you um, manage the children on a day to day basis? Look, I have um, two wonderful kids, um, Harry and Isla, who are nine and six. And in the early years, it was incredibly difficult. I've got a wonderful husband. My mum dropped down to part time work. Um, in order to come and help out with the kids. And my in-laws have stepped in a lot too. So, you know, I'm so thankful to have all of these really supportive people in my life that have helped us. But, you know, I I can really only manage an hour or two with my children. And then after that, I need to go and rest and somebody else needs to come in and, and take care of them. I've moved to using a wheelchair so that if we are going to somewhere like the zoo or the museum, um, then I'm not using the energy in walking, even though mobility isn't an issue. I can't, I can't risk that 
post-exertional malaise <sighs> because that could knock me out for days. And, and Jennifer, when you say you need a wheelchair, is that because it's like physically hard to move your muscles or is it just the exhaustion of, of knowing that you have to go somewhere, walk somewhere? Is it, or is it, is it physically your muscles that is the reason for that? Um, it's more that once I have done the walking that I then get, end up in a crash and that yeah. crash can last it can last hours, it can last weeks. To, uh, a yoga class put me in bed for three days. So, um, you know, it's it's really about reducing the amount of work that my body's doing. Are you hopeful that long COVID will really put this conversation and put, you know, what people like yourself and so many others are living with will start to put it into the spotlight and will you'll start to get the funding and the research and the science that you deserve? I hope so. I think, um, you know, my heart really goes out to everybody that's new to this um, with long COVID. You know, their, their grief and their experiences are real and valid. And I hope that, um, you know, that we do start to get that recognition. Jennifer, thanks for sharing your story. We wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me today. See you. That's Jennifer Bailey-Tuck, aged in her 30s. It just changes every aspect of your life. Jane, I, I knew this would be a really powerful conversation. I didn't expect it to be as as emotional as what it is. There's another text here saying, I'm also crying, actually crying, like I haven't cried for so long. And, you know, hopefully that's a good cry too, where mm. you, you get it out, you feel like you're heard. Heard. You know, you're I think to. you yeah. feel like you're listened to and you feel like you're not alone as well. Dr. Richard Schlellefell is with you. Richard, are you happy to stay with us? We're going oh, to absolutely. take some more calls. Good on you. Yeah, He's got stay. the Order of Australia in Chronic and Infectious Diseases, also the Medical Director at Emerge. In just a moment, we'll go to a unit at the Royal Melbourne hospital that specialises in long COVID. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt in Melbourne, Jane McNaughton with you in our Ballarat studios. We're talking about, well, post-viral diseases and whether or not now the number of us that are living with long COVID and all of the symptoms that come with long COVID will finally shine a spotlight on the quarter of a million, if not more Australians that are living with chronic fatigue syndrome. The calls and the texts we quite simply can't keep up with. The amount of people that are feeling like finally someone is talking about this and that are recognising what they're living with. Dr Richard Schlellefell is with you, but we also want to bring in Associate Professor Alex Holmes. He's a psychiatrist in the Long COVID unit at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Alex, you've been listening to a lot of this conversation. The similarities between the two are quite remarkable. Are there, I mean, are you leaning on the research of people like Richard now to try and understand Long COVID? Well, I think there's a great many people around the world trying to understand COVID, both in the acute and the chronic phase. I think someone said recently that there's a thousand articles a week being published on the topic. So I think it's a focus of worldwide attention. And I'm you know, hopeful that Richard and a whole range of kind of people can improve our understanding over time. So... Alex, when someone presents and they think that they have long COVID, is it more often than not that that is the case? Is it so severe that basically once someone recognises it, we heard from uh, Jan in Backers Marsh that she thinks her husband might have it. Is, Is it pretty well always the case if someone does think that they've got it? Well, I mean, long COVID is, is, is a term, is a descriptor for nothing more than the persistence of symptoms as experienced by the person after three months after the condition. So if, some, if someone has had COVID and they're saying, I still have ongoing symptoms, they have long COVID. Um, it's, it's funny how the designation of that or needing some authority to say you have long COVID he almost needs to validate the patient's experience. But if the person experiences persistent symptoms, that is persistent symptoms after COVID. And Alex, I've actually talked with my partner about this. I've, I've, I've got no idea whether I've had COVID or not. I haven't had any severe symptoms. And that's the case for a lot of people because uh, I've been exposed. I've had friends that I, I've spent time with and they've got it and one person has and the other person hasn't. Uh, 
in that situation where you're not sure if you've actually had COVID, but you've got these strange symptoms that are lasting for months, can that be long COVID too? Well, logically speaking, of course, yes. I mean, not everyone who contracted COVID tested. I mean, there's a lot of testing going on, but it's plausible that one can have COVID and not know it and then experience some sort of ongoing sequelae. Having said that, I'd just like to introduce a little bit of complexity into the the sort of discourse. And I think, unfortunately, this is a very complex area. And one of the things that we have to accept or that there's uh, sort of evidence around is that both people who have had COVID, but both people who didn't have COVID are not feeling as well as they did before the COVID pandemic. (laughs) So there's a general decrease in our well-being uh, that's quite measurable that's occurred you know in in certainly those populations which have been assessed a collective so trauma all, uh, yeah I, I guess so i mean it's sort of i, I think most people have experienced it as very challenging and mm. and, and some level traumatic yes oh absolutely i mean just judging by the raw emotion that people are feeling on the calls and and texts at the moment and again we want to apologize for not reading out everybody's texts today we physically cannot keep up with them that doesn't mean that we don't appreciate your texts and your calls coming through and we will try our hardest if nothing else at least know that you are one of thousands of people that are connecting to this particular story today alex we've heard quite alarming statistics around i guess the amount of research or the amount of people that will call out and will need assistance when it comes to long covid judging from the amount of science and research and money that's been put into things like chronic fatigue syndrome it hasn't been there what needs to change do you think so that we can long term we can support the amount of people that are going to need to a be believed and b be treated okay I mean, I, I guess you're introducing sort of separate concepts there that probably need to be addressed in very different ways. The no, And I think the first one you've introduced is the notion of being believed. Because um, this is probably less a, a question of um, science or provision of money, but more sort of a cultural change in the way we think about individuals who are describing distress or physical symptoms be it chronic pain or fatigue or even on some level kind of difficulty sort of living within the world and how in the absence of there being kind of independent sort of measurable tests the degree to we give credence to them and probably the more important question is why why is it so hard of us why is it so hard to believe all the experiences that we've heard from nola and Jan and Bloom, you know, what, what, what is our impulse to sort of either, either say it's not real or get on with it or it's all in your head? What, what is it about us as a culture that, yeah. that Needs more compassion towards that kind of conclusion? And if you are affected by this conversation, Lifeline Australia is always available if you want to give them a call on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. And Lifeline's not only for people that are currently suffering, it's also for their family, friends and support network as well, Michelle. Let's have a chat to Pat Bernastani. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, Pat. You've got long COVID. You're living with long COVID at the moment. A lot of what you're hearing today, you must, I guess, feel a connection to. Uh, it's been very interesting listening to Dr. Richard. <clears throat> I've been very fortunate in that uh, I had a doctor who um, was understanding about all of this. When I had uh, COVID, he rang me every day. I was never ill enough to go to hospital, but he rang me every day to check how I was. Um, and when I didn't pick up as I thought I should afterwards, I went to see him and he explained to me, he said, you have what's called long covid and I said, so what do I do? And he, he said, think in terms of 12 months and be optimistic. So at what point did you realise that this is not normal and I don't feel like I've recovered? How long did that take? Uh, I guess it was a couple of months afterwards that I went to see him. Uh, and look, we've all had colds before. We've all had the flu or whatever it might be. And you kind of understand your own body and how it picks up and, and how long it takes you to get over things. And I knew that there was still a problem here. And most of the problem was to do with this, what they call post-exertional fatigue. 
um, I could walk to the letterbox and come back and need to sit down and just be breathless and exhausted. And how long has it been now, Pat, that you've been living with long COVID? Well, I, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm, I'm almost good now. Look, it, it was about 18 months ago when I had wow. it. And, and we knew even I less about it then. I feel like we know a bit more about it now. Yeah, we didn't know much about it at all. And we certainly, um, my, my, I'm fortunate because I'm in my 70s. And so I was able to let my body rest when it needed to. Mm. I didn't have children demanding things of me. Yeah. Um, and I woke up, it, it was very strange. I woke up after about eight months, I think, one morning and thought, oh, I feel much better today. Was that a great feeling? Was yeah. that a great day? <laughs> oh, oh, yes, it was. It was. But I still have um, some residual things. I have um, days when they're, they're rarer now, but days where I just feel really tired. Um, things like there is a, a, a double, no, a triple flight of stairs that I need to go up every now and then. Some days I can go up and without any problem at all. Other days I just look at them. I, I take a few steps. I have to stop. Take, get my breath back um, and I also have a few mental um, issues with focus uh, mm. which I still am battling with. And Pat this might seem like a really bizarre question but because of the fatigue and how difficult it is just to do day-to-day -day activities you mentioned walking to the letterbox does that change the way that you your diet is as well because obviously if you're I know when I'm tired or I've got a cold I'm not necessarily it's like cheese eating, on toast yeah you're not necessarily <laughs> eating uh, all the things that you necessarily want to not getting all the nutrition so was that something that you experienced as well that your diet also changed <laughs> my backside changed. <laughs> Comfort food. So, yeah, look, look, I, I was very inactive um, physically and probably did resort to the comfort food a bit too much. I don't know. I have since then managed to, to lose that weight, um, but I do think it was to do with inactivity. Yeah. And the other thing I found was that the inactivity, because of my age, I'm in my 70s, caused me to lose a lot of muscle strength. Mm. And that's been really hard to, to try and regain that. Gosh, there's so much to, to think about. Pat Bon Christiani, thank you so much for sharing your story. And we wish you all the best in your recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you. Associate Professor Alex Holmes is with you. He's a psychiatrist in the Long COVID Ward uh, Unit at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And since the very beginning of the program as well, we have Dr Richard Schlellefell as well, Order of Australia in Chronic Infectious Diseases and the Medical Director at Emerge. Alex, we'll put this one back to you. When we heard from Pat there that she was told right at the very beginning to expect this to take 12 months, is that on average about right? And is that one of the differences, I guess, with something like long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome? You know, we're hearing people here saying my son was diagnosed at six, he still lives with it, and he's now 42. They're very big differences of time frames there. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I'm very grateful to Pat what a beautiful person she is and yeah. what a beautiful example she gave of that, the importance of that sort of tolerant relationship with her general practitioner, which allowed the time frame for her to recover. Now, in her case, it was 12, 18 months. From what we know of the literature so far, probably 95% uh, of people are fine at three months and, you know, a, a decreasing proportion of that beyond that. Now, with a sort of decay curve, there's always going to be a residual number of people who persist for long 12 months, but less and less and less. Overall, the trajectory, however, is towards recovery. And if there is a significant and very important difference from chronic fatigue syndrome, and I think there are very there are clear similarities, it's, it's disingenuous to suggest otherwise, it's that the post-COVID phenomenon seems to be self-limiting although at rates which are very variable, mostly over a very short period of time, but for some people over a significantly longer period of time. We're talking about chronic fatigue syndrome and what we can Hello? learn about chronic fatigue for those that are living with long COVID. Let's have a chat with another Jane who is in Shepparton. Hi, Jane. Oh, hi, guys. Um Hearing your conversation, I came, only came into listening to the program 20 minutes in, so I'm not sure if I missed vital things that Richard was mentioning as my daughter has contracted COVID on the return to school in February and um, is still sort of having lingering symptoms 
um, lack of concentration with school, very conscientious, hardworking student, can't can't keep up, physical exhaustion, complaining during the holidays, she's just exhausted. Um, so just aiming to take her back to the doctor next week and I'm just wondering what would I expect him to perhaps suggest in terms of um, practical things I can do mm. once I've seen the GP again. Especially being 13 as well when there's so much going on in the body. Alex, what can, what can Jane do to help her daughter? Well, Richard's talked about this, and this is where we do borrow from past experience. The central notion here is pacing, and I was interested to hear that Jane's daughter is sort of a high achiever. And we do notice that people who are sort of somewhat driven or high achieving find it hard to kind of limit themselves to the pace of recovery which is actually appropriate so in a way those who are kind of most wanting to get to the finish line uh, 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 find it harder to actually get better so it is frustrating but um uh it, it it is a central part of recovery because there's this notion of a boom and bust cycle that richard um referred to this kind of if you do too much then you pay for it um so it's you sort of need to learn a kind of style of eternal patience mm. in a way and richard is this something that you would tell your patients oh absolutely Look, but there's a few other things that i do i'm a gp so i'm at the coalface and i focused my career for the past 25 years on this disease and uh, first thing i do with a 13 year old particularly is get the gp to assess it clinically and take a history but also check for the other things that could be potentially aggravating her fatigue iron levels thyroid a few other things just a general pathological review to make sure nothing else has been missed and then really encourage a fresh food diet plenty of water um, limits the amount of processed food. I definitely encourage some supplementation. Sometimes that seems to make a difference. And, and uh, medications may have a benefit if there's sleep disturbance or pain or even low mood. In some people, I do use low-level uh, antidepressants or medication to aid sleep and medication to aid pain because those symptoms wow. will inhibit recovery and the the hallmark of these diseases everyone's talking about is what's called post-exertional malaise and that is the most important aspect of this disease is recognizing that when you do something if you do too much you'll collapse and this concept of pacing that alex talked about is essential to really understand the way forward because you know if you push yourself too much or the teachers tell you to come back to school or you're being lazy that's totally counterproductive emotionally, but also physically to the patient. Richard, how you mentioned diet there. I did ask uh, yes. one of our previous calls as well. If you're, if you're someone that's, say, living by yourself, and yes. how, how important is it to at least try, I know it's probably extremely difficult to, to contemplate having to cook up a fresh meal if you're that exhausted, but can it actually aid in the recovery process or if you have got chronic, chronic fatigue syndrome, can it, uh, can, it, can it at all help with the day-to-day energy levels? Well, look, I'll say yes, but if you're a fatigue patient, boiling an egg may be impossible. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think you've got to be realistic. I mean, I think if you've got carers to mm. help you, and if someone, and often people are too tired to eat, if they're severe, they only eat one or two meals a day because they're too fatigued in the process of eating. But if they're mild to moderate, they may well have three meals a day. Try and have fresh food. And that's, Try I guess, where there's so many of the problems foods. come in, Richard, when we talk about the lack of support and funding. There's sure. so many other diseases uh, or illnesses that people live with. I mean, even as we age, there are support networks there to ensure that you do things like eat, you know, and that you're okay. Mm. And that It's you're such a simple thing, but it's yeah. so important to do, have well, those things. And it just shows how important just having that support network is and, and it's not there it's not always there for everybody it isn't look in most of my experiences they have the carer is usually the parent or the child in some case it can be the partner or it can be employed carers but sometimes it's just benevolent friends who just turn up and keep turning up year in year out to support people who live a very limited life in their house and they and very rarely do you get government or uh, carer support from the community because this is a hidden group and because they don't get ndis very easily nor even 
in the pension. Until the last couple of years, it was very hard to get an ME-CFS patient a pension, even though they're housebound, bedridden. And now and Richard, that's become a bit easier. But the NDIS is really difficult to access for these patients because of the lack of clearness in the diagnosis. So that's Richard, part of the problem. On that point, uh, just very briefly, yes. we've only got a couple of minutes left, but yeah. um, have you have you actually approached government about this? I've been going to government and talking to politicians and talking to people for over 20 years. So Has it I've done been anything? Involved... Has it gone anywhere? Uh, I'm the medical director of Emerge Australia and as a group, uh, we've been invited by the College of GPs to give lectures and I've put out information to every politician, every... Uh, person in Australia who's running for this election. We make approaches to state government, federal government uh, on a constant basis through our organisation Emerge and we're trying. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but we need money for research. Yeah, we need money for teaching doctors and we need a general education of the whole community. But then fundamentally we need money to support the people who have these illnesses. And I totally agree, the long COVID condition may help guide the MECFS condition and as Alex says this condition of long COVID may peter out with 8 to 12, 18 months people may be almost fully recovered but there'll be a group of people who have long COVID if you're in hospital intensive care unit on a ventilator you're permanently damaged or if you've got organ or tissue damage if you're a severe case so you will have a form of chronic multi-system disorder yeah. and then there's the long COVID patients so not everyone with long COVID is going to fully recover so we're going to have a burden of disease on top of them yeah, which is why we need this research and the amount of thanks uh, that is coming in for both of you for your work cannot be underestimated. So many people saying they finally feel heard. Dr Richard Schlollefell, Order of Australia in Chronic Infectious Diseases. He's the director at Emerge. You can go to emerge.org.au. Thank you so much for your work and for your time today. It's a pleasure. And Associate Professor Alex Holmes, psychiatrist in the Long COVID unit at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Again, thank you for your time and for your work as well. My pleasure. Oh, Jane, Jane McNaughton from our Ballarat studios today. Again, we have to apologise to the full board of calls that we didn't get to, to the texts that we didn't read. Please, it's not that you're not being heard far from it. We wanted mm. to try and get through as many people that we can today, but such an incredible and emotional program. Share this with people uh, that you think needs to hear it. Of course, the Conversation Hour has a podcast, but go reach out to emerge.org.au. Jane, thanks so much for your time today. Anytime, and there's also Lifeline available on 13 11 14, but it just shows how important this conversation was. 